Today, I want to continue our theme, and um, also, uh, we are doing a series in the book of Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians has proved to be a wonderful book. Title of our uh, series is that of Restoration. I remind you again that restoration is taking something old and making it new again and uh, to restore to an earlier condition through repairing or remodeling, to impart new vigor into something, to revive, to bring to new life. And the Apostle Paul tells us that God's desire is to restore the church and you and I are the church. And so therefore, we allow and we hope that God would work in our hearts and as a result, we would have new vigor in our spiritual life. We would have newness in our walk, that lives could be repaired. People need the Lord. So today, as we continue in this study, I remind you that Paul is writing to a church that he has established. And he's sharing with that church the importance of restoration and renewal in the walk with Jesus Christ. The key verse in this uh, book of Philippians, or one of the key verses is that of the first chapter, the sixth verse, being confident of this, that he who has begun a work within you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that should make us feel good, that God's not finished with us yet, he continuously is working in our hearts. And may we be Christ's followers and follow him. As I start today in restoration, I want to share with you a story of a picture that I have hanging in my office. The title of this particular picture is A Taste of the Past. It's a puzzle. If you look very closely, you see the lines. It's a 300-piece puzzle, and it's a 15 by 29 puzzle. I treasure this picture because it was given to me by Pastor Vance, Vance Free. You see, Vance has been by my side for 23 years here at Evangel Temple. Three years ago, he was diagnosed with a frontal temporal brain disease, which has resulted and affected his life in the form of dementia. In the early stages of this encounter, Vance was encouraged to build puzzles to keep his brain active and to keep it focused. At the conclusion of this puzzle, he mounted it on a board and he gave it to me. He knew how I loved to restore cars and in the name of it, a taste of the past. When looking at this puzzle, as it hangs in my office, I not only think about Vance and his loyalty to this church, but I also think about life in general. I think also about God's word. You see, one of the things that's tough when we read the word of God or challenging is to figure out how everything fits together. It's somewhat like a puzzle. A recent visit to my office, a gentleman by the name of Tony shared with me that he is reading the Bible through. He shared with me that he's reading the King James, and he said, you know, pastor, sometimes it's confusing. Many things are clear, but then there are some issues that puzzle me. Well, sometimes we don't need to know all the issues. We can live okay without trying to figure everything out in life, 
but sometimes it's important that we understand. If some issues are confusing to you today as they are for me, I want you to imagine what it must have been like in the early church when there was no Bible. In the early church, it must have been like a puzzle, somewhat difficult to put together. No commentaries, but yet instructions by individuals like the Apostle Paul. As we go through this book of Philippians, a book that uh, we have hopefully learned to appreciate, the book of Philippians is a book that was written to a church that was just a few years old. Everything was new. And if you were Jewish, your understanding of the faith has been turned upside down. If you were a Gentile follower of Jesus Christ, you had to figure out not only what it was to be a Christian, but you also had to understand how the Jewish faith fit into all of this. There was no New Testament to consult. And then there were preachers that would come along and they would share things that were contradictory to what the spiritual leaders had shared with the church. One issue concerning spiritual restoration and spiritual growth and how we grow spiritually, well, that was a popular issue that Paul was addressing. You know, today we say, hey, read your Bible. Today we tell people to go to church. Today we tell people to get involved in a small group or a Sunday school class and grow spiritually. But I know that all of us know individuals who have done all of that, but they seem to still be like babes in the Lord, not necessarily advancing in their spiritual walk. It's not always as clear as what we think. The mission statement of Evangel Temple is is that we exist to connect people to a growing relationship in Jesus Christ. A growing relationship, not a stagnant, but growing, teaching, sharing, discipling people. And the Apostle Paul was one who had those same desires. When we think about the Apostle Paul, Paul was not in the company of Jesus during his earthly ministries. Paul did not witness the miracles of Jesus Christ. Yet Paul was successful in his ministry. He expanded the kingdom of God in great ways. He established more churches. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament books in the Bible. The apostle Paul developed a strategy of restoration. You see, Paul selected his message, which was Christ and him crucified. Paul selected his target group for ministry, an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul selected the target specific areas to launch his preaching ministry. And that was where the gospel had not been preached. People need the Lord. God used Paul in writing to the church of Philippi. And Paul offers them, and he offers you and I today, a strategy. A strategy of spiritual growth, a strategy of restoration in our Christian walk as we follow Jesus Christ. For the Apostle Paul, the pursuit of excellence meant pursuing 
Christ-like perfection. And after we come to the, know the Lord personally and intimately, we must go on to perfection. Elsewhere in this book, it says to work out your salvation. Not to work for your salvation, but to work it out. There is somewhat of a partnership that you and I have as we grow in the Lord. And one of the reasons that Paul writes Philippians is because he wanted to clear up some confusion that was taking place in coming against the church in Philippi. If you were here last week or if you've listened to last week's sermon, you'll understand that as we come together today that Paul had just covered one of the controversies And I'm glad that we no longer have to deal with that. The debate about whether or not Christians have to follow Old Testament regulations, especially relating to circumcision. Paul was pretty clear that our acceptance with God doesn't depend upon our human efforts. Our acceptance depends on what Jesus Christ has done for us. He says in Philippians, the third chapter, the ninth verse, speaking of himself, the apostle Paul says of himself, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I no longer count on my own goodness or my Ability, Paul said, to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. So last week's take home, as we left this building, as you turned off your computer or your TV, hopefully, you understood from the writings of the Apostle Paul that our relationship with God is a product of what Jesus has done for us, and we add nothing to that equation. People need the Lord. Paul was afraid that some people may think, hey, this guy has arrived. This guy is a spiritual giant. And we've all had those individuals in our life, people that we looked up to spiritually, people that, that uh, have kind of set the bar for us. The other night I was at the Royal Ranger meeting, and I watched these men as they led our boys And I could see in the eyes of the boys that they were being touched by mentors. People that knew the Lord, but yet people who shared those skills and also scriptural principles with our young men. And they looked at them like they were spiritual giants. Well, Paul is afraid that these individuals in the church of Philippi are looking at him in such a way. So in verses 7 through 11 of that third chapter... He addresses, what he, or the, he addresses what he has shared with them about his gains becoming lost and garbage, trusting in Christ, giving up all for him, and Paul's own accomplishments mean nothing in his spiritual experience. That it's through Christ's mighty power and suffering And Paul's concerned that after stating that the the church would be under the, the impression that he had already arrived after stating such things, that he's made it spiritually. Thinking that you have arrived spiritually is a pretty big barrier. 
for restoration or spiritual renewal in our lives if we think that we've reached the top. Believing that you are already completely mature in Jesus Christ. Paul has a concern about that. So in today's text, he addresses that concern. It's found in the third chapter, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, what Paul is saying is that my goal is in Christ, and my goal is to understand his goal for me. He will provide the resources. He will be there to help me to press on to that goal. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Some believers at Philippi may have misunderstood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Some might have thought, hey, I've arrived. Some might have thought that once they became a Christian, nothing else was required of them. And especially those that perhaps came up against the Judaizers and and they thought, hey, I've won that battle. Man, I'm a Christian. There's nothing else to do. But Paul wanted to clear up this confusion by stating that he hadn't arrived yet. And they hadn't arrived. And if Paul was still in the process, what hope do they have in thinking that they've arrived? You know, they've looked at the Apostle Paul like he was somebody that was untouchable. And we make this mistake sometimes today. Sometimes we emphasize entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ so much. And sometimes we have a tendency to stop right there. That once somebody has entered a relationship with Christ, we're happy. We celebrate. People need the Lord. We emphasize that moment so much that if we're not careful, we can forget the entire process. You see, you and I are growing in Christ Jesus. God has started to work in us, and he'll bring it to completion in that great day. There's a real danger of falling into this trap. There are some people who give the impression that they think they are spiritually mature, that they don't need to grow anymore. And that is deadly because it's called spiritual pride. And Paul does not want to be associated with that. You know, I love being part of a church where we're okay showing up and saying, you know, I don't have it all together. I bring baggage into this place. I'm a mess. And I need to admit that I'm still very much in the process of growing. There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, I admire you if you have a struggle, if you have some situations, because the church is a hospital, a spiritual hospital. And there's something healthy about humility about admitting that we are nowhere close to where we should be. And the Apostle Paul, an example in Jesus Christ, is willing to do that. 
It's freeing to be able to admit that we don't have it all together. And as long as we're alive, we're continuing in this process of growing spiritually. We haven't arrived yet. In Philippians, the third chapter, Paul gives somewhat of a personal testimony. A personal testimony on how he ran the Christian race. And he offers several suggestions that we might use in our restoration process. And so today, we look at these in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, Paul is in a pursuit here for excellence. That's what he's saying. Paul recognizes that he hasn't arrived yet, and anyone who strives for excellence must have a willingness to confess their shortcomings and admit that there's room for improvement in his or her life. And to move forward and not to feel like you have arrived. Proverbs 25, 28 reads, Like a city whose walls are broken through is the person who lacks self-control. If you're going to be successful in running in this race, and Paul uses these athletic terms as he, as he has in analogies elsewhere, but we must have control over our own spirit. Controlling our spirit, our emotions, our intellect, it requires discipline in our lives. We must discipline our minds. Proverbs also says that a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. And we must discipline our will, our will to obey God's word in every area of our lives. Discipline our emotions that we take authority over how we feel. Remember that focus, that approach that Paul talked about. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And we must discipline our bodies, take care of our physical vessels. If we do so, God will do the rest and he'll work with us, through us. God will finish what he has started. Remember that text that we opened up with in the first chapter, the sixth verse of Philippians, be confident. In other words, you can count on this. You can put your money on this. You can bet your bottom dollar on this, that he who's begun a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus. Paul admits, I haven't arrived yet. The second thing, Paul develops a certainty of approach or a certainty of focus. When you look at the text, you find here in that 12th verse, not that I've already obtained all of this or I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What are you following after in your life? What am I following after? What are you aiming towards in your life? I have to ask myself that. Do you have a single-minded target? Are you certain? A certainty of aim to do with your approach to life and your focus in life. What things are you pursuing? Remember, rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul repeats, again, I say rejoice. Paul was saying, I have found my calling and I am in hot pursuit to fulfill that calling. The purpose that God has given me. 
I know what God wants me to do and I spend my time, I spend my energy, I spend my resources and my strength and I pursue that purpose. Fulfilling the purpose was Paul's passion, the purpose that God had given him. What is your passion? It was what he lived for. You know, restoration projects often come to an end shortly after they start. People who have good intentions of restoring something, they can lose interest. And you can lose money if it's a big investment. You can move on to something else. There are garages that are filled with projects that were abandoned. There are projects that are abandoned that are filled, filling garages, whether it be a clock or whether it be a sign or a sewing machine. You see, what's driving your passion in life? Sandy Hannah had up to four greyhound dogs that she had adopted. I remember visiting her home and seeing these gentle dogs as they would come around me and they'd mind their own business. You see, up until a few years ago, greyhound racing dogs were put to death after their racing life. They were not good for breeding. They were too old to race. And a group of ladies started an adoption agency, which the sole purpose of that agency was to find good homes for these dogs. And the Hannahs did so. I'll tell you a story about a man whose daughter adopted one of these greyhound dogs. He visited her home at Thanksgiving, and she showed him the beautiful greyhound. It was quite um, impressive. So after dinner, he went out in the backyard, and the story says he had a talk with the dog. He asked the dog. He said, hey, greyhound, how are you doing? And the stately greyhound responded, man, life is so good. I got a big backyard here. I get three square meals a day, and I have an owner that loves me. So he continued uh, to ask the dog other questions. He uh, asked the dog, he said, hey, did you ever race in Miami? The dog said, yes. He said, I ran in Miami, and I won five times there. The man asked, did you get too old to run? And the stately greyhound responded, no, I quit, I quit. And the man went on to further to ask him, hey, uh, greyhound, why did you quit? And the greyhound, however dogs do this, signaled the man to come a little closer to him. And he said, I found out that the rabbit I was chasing wasn't real. Interesting story about greyhounds. Now, that wasn't Sandy's greyhound, but uh, there are so many things that claim our attention. And we must be, have certainty of our aim, like the Apostle Paul did. You see, there's a lot of rabbits out there that aren't real. Some of you are even chasing them right now during this pandemic. You hear all kinds of stories, and you think the rest of the world should hear these stories, and you know, you form opinions. Be careful. Be careful what you spend your time on chasing. Don't spend another day chasing after things that aren't real. Only what you do for Christ is going to last. That's what the Apostle Paul says.
Paul has not arrived. He has a certainty of his aim. And then as I look at this text, I see that Paul's very selective about his approach in life, period. How he approaches things. There are some things he decides to remember, and there's other things that I'm going to forget. Brothers and sisters, the scripture says in verse number 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do is forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. You see, Satan has a way of bringing up our past. He has a way of bringing up our challenges in the past, our failures, maybe those times of illness, Maybe those times of burnout or, or breakdown. Maybe the sins of our past. And he tries to condemn us with the mistakes of the past. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm forgetting those things which are behind. But Paul decides to remember his past and all that God's done for him that prepared him to fulfill the purpose that God has for him. His past mistakes become a constant testimony like, I used to be like this, and thank God I'm not like that today. And Paul's attitude seemed to be that the past is very real. It happened. Mistakes were made, and I'm so sorry, and I've repented, and I've forsook my sin, and it's over with. And I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. The old Saul is dead, and I'm a new creature in Christ, Jesus. I'm forgiven, and I'm delivered. I've always attempted in my life to make my past a guidepost rather than a hitching post. That I can learn from the things of the past, but at the same time, give God the glory for the deliverance. And then there were some things that Paul says that he is going to forget, but all things that are part of Paul's thought life before he got saved weren't all forgotten. Because, as I said, he used them for the glory of God. His credentials of being born out of the stock of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day as touching the law, a, a Pharisee concerning zeal, he persecuted the church and touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He decides to forget all of his credentials and move on. Jesus came, he suffered, he bled, and he died as penalty for the sins of the world. And people need the Lord, and Paul decides to trust Jesus Christ alone for his salvation and trusting Christ completely for the transformation and the restoration in his life. And in these confusing times, church, we must keep growing through the means of grace in Jesus Christ. Keep following after Christ and allow him to control our minds and our thoughts. And Some things you need to remember, and then there are some things we must forget. That we aren't a slave to them. We're not conquered by them. And focus on your assignment that God has for you. Paul was one who hadn't arrived. He was one that had a certainty of aim and focus. He was one that he forgot the past. And finally, Paul concentrated his efforts on pressing towards the goal, the mark. As I see it here in verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
Paul seems to realize that his assignment was personal. He could not be like anyone else. He could not do everything. But his assignment was personal. I mean, it would be a disaster if Sharon asked me to go stand by Beth in the choir and sing soprano. I would ruin it. I focus on what God has called me to do, the things that he has called me to do. And the enemy cannot discourage us from our God-given assignment as we keep that focus. He will try to overload us. He'll try to distract us from our assignment. And often the enemy's most effective weapon against servants of God, distraction, discouragement, busyness, burnout, emotional needs, etc. And looking around at others may distract and discourage us. I mean, if I had to play this piano 10 minutes before the service, we would probably have zero viewers, other than maybe a couple relatives of mine that admired me for trying. You see, trying to do too many things will overload us and will rob us from our effectiveness. And, and, and don't use that as an excuse because we do need some media people. But we must give ourselves to one thing that we're called to do. Overloaded hands are ineffective hands. And Paul makes that clear. I think of an illustration right now of for almost 70 years, the only beverage produced and sold by the company of Coca-Cola Company was that flagship Coca-Cola. It was invented in 1886, and it wasn't until, actually until 1955, that Coca-Cola beverage offered, offering started to expand with a bottler in Italy. And the name of the drink was that of Fanta. It was an orange drink. And from that point on, the company began to add a wider variety of beverage selections and portions and sizes for the customer. And the Coca-Cola company believes in offering an assortment of beverages for every lifestyle, for every life stage, and every life occasion. And today, there's over 500 beverage brands that are sold in more than 200 countries in this world by Coca-Cola. That amounts to like 3,500 plus beverages in numerous categories, such as regular and Low-calorie and no-calorie, sparkling beverages, fruit juices, fruit drinks, bottled water, sports and energy drinks, ready-to-drink teas and coffees, and Coca-Cola makes refreshing drinks, as they say, in almost any size from a 6-ounce to 10-ounce, 16, 20, 24, half-liters, 1-liter, 2-liters. When I was in South America, I saw 3-liter Cokes. You can purchase them over the counter. You can purchase their products by a machine. And Coca-Cola is all over the world because of their focus, because of their aim, because of the certainty of their effort. They did not get into the computer boom, as far as I know. They didn't get into the pharmaceutical market, as far as I know. They, they, they did not get into building amusement parks, as far as I know. They focused on one thing, ice cold, refreshing, soft drinks that have turned into 
basically liquid gold. May our focus be clear. The Apostle Paul clearly understood his call. He gave himself to one thing, and that was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached Jesus and him crucified. He preached to the Gentiles and the places where the gospel had not been preached. He had one goal, one purpose, one desire, that I may win people to Jesus Christ. People need the Lord. I love what Paul says to those who think that they're already perfect. And we end with this text. It's there in the 15th verse. All of us then who are mature, are mature should take view of what I've just shared, the things that I've shared. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. The Living Bible says, I hope that all of you are mature Christians will see eye to eye with me on these things. And if you disagree on some point, I believe that God will make it plain to you. In other words, it's a sign of maturity if we are willing to admit that we are not perfect. And if you think you're perfect, it's an admission of immaturity, as I see the Apostle Paul stating here. He continues, and if on some point you think differently, God's going to make that clear to you. It was in 1940 that a lady, Esther, who was her name, she married a pastor and an evangelist. She was an accomplished woman. She was an author. She was a poet. She was a composer. She was a singer. She was also an evangelist herself. This lady by the name of Esther was the associate pastor at the Pentecostal Angelus Temple of Los Angeles, a lady by the name of Amy Simple McPherson was the pastor. She wrote a number of books and she wrote a number of hymns. But here in 1941, when she was age 32, the song that is best known, this lady wrote this hymn as a result of suffering. She suffered from illness. She died Esther died at the age of 53. And there are special words, the words that she shared and wrote. Oftentimes, the day seems long. And our trials are hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, to, in despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. And all tears forever over in God's eternal day. And then she wrote, sometimes the sky looks dark and, and with not a ray of light. We're tossed and we're driven on. No human help in sight. But there is one in heaven who knows our deepest care. But Jesus solves your problems. Just go to him in prayer. And finally, she wrote, life's days will soon be over and the storms will be forever past. We'll cross the great divide, a glory safe at last. We shall share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, and a crown. The tempter will be banished. We'll lay our burdens down. For some of us, that's evident this week. In my family, we've lost two individuals. We've lost a friend, part of this church, and Alan. But you know what? It's, it's over, as Esther wrote. 
It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be worth it all. And in the chorus, she says, so bravely run the race. Like the Apostle Paul says to us today, run this race. Let's stand together and let's sing this in closing today. In celebration of God's goodness and a certainty of our focus that we will keep our eyes on Jesus Christ.